If you have a Bible with you tonight, let's look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to do more singing later in the service, but let's look to God's Word right now. Romans chapter 8. It might be a verse that you have memorized already. I hope that it is, and maybe if not, it will be after tonight. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What wonderful words. As Christians, we rightly associate these words with salvation, redemption, acceptance with God, being reconciled to God, His love for us, and an eternity in His presence. But these familiar words in Romans 8.1 imply some darker things too, don't they? There's some darker shades there about natural human condition and the problem of sin within. So some today preach Christ and the cross and salvation in such a way that you'd have to wonder why they think Paul used a word like condemnation in Romans 8.1. I mean, why not say, Paul, why not say there's now no more sorrow in Christ? There's no more Hopelessness in Christ. There's no more doubt in Christ. Why not say there is no more emptiness within? There's no more brokenness in this world. There's now no more hurt or there's now no more injustice. Now, other places of the Bible speak about how Christ addresses those things that I just listed, but, but Romans 8.1 isn't one of them. Romans 8.1 says, in Christ there's therefore now no condemnation. What condemnation? Is there really condemnation? How important is the in Christ Jesus part of Romans 8.1? Is anyone not in Christ Jesus? Will there be a condemnation for, for some? And if so, what's that condemnation? Is it simply missing out on God's best for you? Is it simply self-condemnation, like low self-esteem? Or is hell something of our own making, something of just the consequences of our own repeated bad decisions, the scenario of life that you've set for yourself? Well... In order to help us remember and re-believe and rejoice in, glory in even, what we have in Christ Jesus, I think we have to think through what it means to be outside of Him. Or we could put it another way, in order to ponder and glory in and rejoice in the reality that we as Christians now have no condemnation, I think we have to think through what the Bible says about condemnation about God's righteous judgment. So what condemnation has been taken away for those in Christ Jesus? Well, think about how this word is used elsewhere. I'll give you a lot of other passages for us to consider this evening, and no need to turn to them. I think most of them will be on the screen behind me. In Romans 5, 18, for instance, the word condemnation is used, and it tells us there that in Adam... His one trespass, his one act of disobedience, the beginning of the story of the fall, 
one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So quickly, we can, we can surmise from this that everyone is born in this world under condemnation because my dad sinned, and your dad sinned, and their dad's sinned, and it keeps going back all the way to the first dad, and he sinned. Listen to Second Peter 2, what it says there about false prophets... Using the word condemnation again, it says their condemnation from long ago is not idle. What that really means is is their condemnation has been long hanging over their heads. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world... But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What Peter's telling us here is that false prophets shouldn't presume on God's patience. They shouldn't think that because they don't sense his condemnation now, that his condemnation is not there. Go back to the famous condemnation stories of the Old Testament, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the day of Noah. And there what you'll see is they were under judgment and they didn't know it. Judgment was there. It was hanging over their heads. Their destruction was not asleep. So, when we come across the word condemnation, oftentimes in the New Testament, sometimes it means something temporary, something horizontal. Oftentimes, usually what it means, though, is God's wrath, His judgment, eternal death. Sometimes words like torment or suffering are used. And then regarding the place of this eternal suffering in the final age... Well, you know one word, it's called hell. Other words for it, it's called the abyss in the Gospels, Hades, Gehenna. Now maybe you've heard that word Gehenna actually referred to a a burning trash heap outside the city of Jerusalem. So maybe you've heard some today talk about hell is Gehenna, it's just a bad place. I mean, there was a real Gehenna. You know, it's like living in the slum of the slums. It's a burning trash heap. And you can find places like that in Indonesia. You can find places like that in India. Those are hell. It's hell for those people. Well, no, I, I think Jesus is using that burning trash heap just outside of Jerusalem as a symbol of suffering, of horrific suffering. But when you piece all these words together and see them used interchangeably, it's clear that they're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about a realm of eternal judgment and suffering after death. In other words, what your grandma called hell. And rightly so. Now sometimes one of these words might describe one reality of hell differently than another word for hell. Sometimes certain sins or certain kinds of people 
are used in a certain passage to describe then this place of hell and the suffering that's to come for those outside of Christ. But they're all talking about the same place and they're all talking about the same kind of fate for those who are not in Christ Jesus. So when Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation, we should think of condemnation as hell. Eternal death, eternal suffering. That's what we saw in 2 Peter 3. You might have noticed 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2 used the word condemnation and shortly after it said they had been cast into hell. Yes, it's about false prophets in 2 Peter 2, but the description and the connections all apply to all of God's end time judgment. So if you check out Christian blogs... I don't need to tell you that hell is under fire these days. Proof of that, I think, is a book. I I don't usually mention authors and names in books, um, in sermons to critique, but I think this one is worth your attention. There's a book by a pastor in Michigan named Rob Bell, that's entitled Love Wins, and it's getting a lot of attention, both on one side and of course, on another. His thesis is that in the end, God gets what he wants. And he wants everyone in. He wants love and acceptance and reconciliation. And in the end, love will win. It's interesting, having thumbed through the book for a few hours today, reading most of it, by taking hell out of the equation, what you see in some of these chapters are key, biblically orthodox doctrines starting to crumble. In other words, if there's no hell, then why did Jesus have to die? And what was he doing on the cross? What is the, what we call, in a theological term, atonement? What was the atonement? What did it do? What did Jesus' death do? What was it for? What did he hope to accomplish Well, these things crumble in Rob Bell's book, as does the definition of sin and the very purpose of the cross. We need to keep our doctrine of hell. Hell, in Scripture, is abandonment. Hell is abandonment. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where there it says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction... Now, now notice the words being heaped up here. Punishment, eternal destruction, and then here's the abandonment phrase, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Outside of everything good that they know in Christ, that they know in this created world that is is run by, by Lord Jesus. Jude, verse 13, talks about those for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So maybe you're happy to not have God in the picture, but you can't stand being alone. Well, you shouldn't miss the fact that a lot of descriptions of hell describe it in very lonely terms. If you've heard any conception of hell, that that at least the fun people will be there. You haven't heard a biblical description of hell as it relates to other people, yes, There'll be other people there. But there's no 
description of community and togetherness and partying and relationships instead. When people are suffering, they, they get very individual, right? If you're in a ton of pain, childbirth, right? I, I found out that my wife doesn't want to have good long talks right then in the middle of a contraction. <laughs> She's got tunnel vision, right? I'm the water boy. I'm the towel guy. That's, that's my job. I, I, I get it now. We have four kids, so I, I know. Well, back to the point, hell is abandonment in Scripture. Hell in Scripture is destruction. We saw that in 2 Peter 2. We saw it in 2 Thessalonians 1. You can also see that word destruction in Philippians 3, in 1 Thessalonians 5. You see it in a lot of places in Scripture. Hell is destruction, being destroyed in body and soul. Hell is conscious torment in Scripture. In Luke 16, Jesus gives the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man? Just asking for a drop of water on his tongue because he was in torment. In Revelation 14, it's even darker. It refers to those who will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Notice, according to this passage, God is not abandoned them in every way possible. 2 Thessalonians 1 says it's away from his presence. Revelation 14 says it's in his presence. Which one is it? It must be a mistake, right? No. Everything good about his presence is gone, and everything about his powerful wrath is there. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. You ever have that restless feeling of no rest? Maybe you've done travel where, you know, you're in a plane for 24 hours, 18 hours, something like that, and it just gets ridiculous. You know, no rest. It feels like it's never going to end. And that's a plane ride with peanuts, (laughs) movies, you know? No rest in hell. Torment forever and ever. Is it really forever? Yes. Hell is abandonment, hell is destruction, hell is conscious torment, and hell, we should say, is forever. There are a lot of things about hell that describe it in eternal ways. In other words, Matthew 25 and Jude verse 7 talk about eternal fire. It's not just fire, it's eternal fire. And some people would would dodge the force of this passage by saying, sure, hell's fire is forever. It doesn't mean that they'll suffer forever. But then there are other passages that talk about eternal destruction, like 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. And then some people would say, oh, surely that doesn't mean conscious, ongoing torment forever and ever in hell, because it's eternal destruction. And how do you possibly destroy something forever? Don't you eventually reach a point at which that thing is destroyed and it doesn't cease to be in existence anymore? And that would make sense, except you have to ask, what are the authors doing? 
Or what is Jesus himself doing when he puts the word eternal in front of things that seem to have, have a temporary duration, like destruction, right? Nothing burns forever, they say. Surely, eventually, they're, they're burnt up, it's done, the payment has been, has been met, and, and it doesn't keep going. Well, Douglas Moo, a New Testament scholar, an excellent New Testament scholar, writes this about the word destruction. Destruction and its related words in the New Testament refer to the situation of a person or an object that's lost the essence of its nature or function. I probably lost some of you quoting that. So let me keep quoting, and and I think you'll see what he's saying. He says, Destroy and destruction can refer to a barren land, to ointment that is poured out wastefully, to wineskins with holes that no longer function, and to a lost coin or even to the entire world that, that perished. So, Douglas Moo concludes, in none of these cases do the objects cease to exist. They cease to be useful or to exist in their original intended state. In other words, hell is destruction in the sense that it's final and utter loss and ruin and waste. This tells us that those in hell have failed to embrace the meaning of life and they have wasted all of life and they are being, ongoingly being destroyed. So hell is forever. Hebrews 6 refers to eternal judgment. The judgment keeps going. It doesn't stop. I know that's hard to imagine for those of us who maybe expect to live 90 years or 100 years. In Mark 9, there's the picture Jesus gives that in hell, their worm does not die. What is this? He's picturing an intestinal worm eating someone from the inside out. You say, ah, aha, eventually the worm eats its fill. Eventually it's done. Eventually the worm dies. Their worm does not die implies miraculously, mysteriously. The worm isn't really there, but it's as if they were being eaten from the inside out and the worm is never satisfied. The worm is never full. It never dies. It keeps going. So Matthew 3 talks about fire, which is unquenchable. What could be meant by these things except that the punishment that is to come for those outside of Christ, the condemnation for those outside of Christ, is eternal condemnation. And it's punishment. It's not accidental, but it's punishment. That's why Matthew 25 is called eternal punishment. Or in 2 Thessalonians 1, it says that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you, you Christians. It goes on in 2 Thessalonians 1 to use the word vengeance. God has vengeance on those who are outside of Christ, those who have sinned against him in his ways. It goes on in 2 Thessalonians 1 to use the word punishment. God's condemnation. It's not just an unfortunate reality. It's part of his just judgment. 
The Bible repeatedly uses words like punishment or judgment in describing the final condemnation of those outside of Christ. And hell is just, according to the Bible. It's fair. Yes, God is loving and He's merciful and He's kind and He's good. And we just sang about how deep and how magnificent, how how unworthy to be described is the love of God. But Scripture also says that He's holy and He's righteous and He's just and He cannot look upon sin. So the Bible tells us that God is even wrathful. Wrath is a word used almost as much as any other to describe the judgment that's to come. Wrath implies anger. It implies something emotional. He's not dispassionate. Which surely means that sin is worse than we think. I mean, who are we to assess the justice of eternal condemnation when we ourselves are the condemned? We, we are the criminals. So we wouldn't think of asking a criminal here at the, the courtroom. We wouldn't think of asking him if he thinks his, his punishment is fair. He'll always say no unless he got off scot-free. He'll always want less. He'll always think it's not that bad. And certainly, it doesn't seem right to our finite minds that people would sin for 80 years and then be punished for all eternity. But it doesn't have to seem just to us. It's eternal punishment for violating an infinitely holy standard. The infinite duration corresponds to the infinite heinousness of the sin itself. And what sin are we talking about? Just sin. Every sin falls short of his glory. Hell is wrathful. It's personal. He's angry with a holy anger. A local municipal judge is not allowed to be impartial. I'm sorry, he must be impartial rather, right? He must be unemotional. The local municipal judge can't be personal in his justice. If it's found out that the one whom that person raped had raped the judge's daughter, they would put another judge on that case. It's too close to home. He's too personal. In fact, with the judge, it's not that even when it's as close to something as his own daughter... It's not that he has been sinned against so much as he has to follow a law that's above him. You see? When someone steals from Kmart and comes before a judge, the judge upholds a law that's above him. He himself has not been wronged, but not so with God. He's the one that's actually been sinned against. He is the law. And he is emotional about it. That's what the word wrath means. He is angry. It is personal. And he is offended. Romans 2.8 says, Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, and all of us at some point or another, in some degree or another, before or after Christ, have been self-seeking and not obeyed the truth. But those who are 
summarized with those things, for them there will be wrath and fury. Colossians 3, 6, we saw just a few weeks ago in our study of Colossians there, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. What things? Well, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, even covetousness, and idolatry. Revelation 6 describes the end time picture of those who will be facing the coming of Christ. And they will call on the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What an ironic partnership of words there. Wrath and Lamb. The lamb is now wrathful. The lamb who was slaughtered for sins is now the one seated on his throne and he's coming with a great day of wrath. None can stand. So God does the judgment. Let's be clear about that. The Bible is clear that God gives the judgment. It's not just that judgment has to happen, but that there's wrath and hell is not the inevitable natural consequences of our poor choices where we live out a hellish life until we can maybe one day see through to God's love and then love wins. No. You might have heard that Jonathan Edwards in 1741 preached what is probably now the most famous sermon Um, ever preached in our country. Maybe you've never read it before. The language is blistering. But I stand by it and say that it represents not only biblical truth, but loving pastorate preaching. Listen to Edwards. Regardless of what people have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, it's clear that whatever pains one takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, unless he believes in Christ, God is under no obligation to keep him from eternal destruction for one moment. So it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. God is dreadfully provoked and his anger is as great toward them as it is toward those suffering his fierce wrath even now. They've done nothing to appease or lessen God's anger, nor is he under any obligation or promise to hold them up for one moment. Hell's mouth is open for them. The flames gather and flash around them, longing to take them and swallow them up. The fire trapped inside their own hearts is struggling to break out, and they have no hope of a mediator. Nothing within their reach can give them any security. In short, they have no refuge and nothing to grab hold of. The only thing that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and the uncovenanted, obliged patience of an incensed God. The black clouds of God's wrath are hanging directly over your head if you're 
outside Christ with its loud thunder. And if it were not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst upon you. The wrath of God is like great waters that are temporarily dammed up. The waters are constantly rising and gathering might, and nothing but the mere pleasure of God holds them back right now. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and it's straining, and the arrow is already set on the string, and justice aims it directly at your heart. And if you're tempted to say, Ryan, but surely that's hyperbole, as are the descriptions of the Bible about hell. Surely those are symbolic. Yes. Fire which keeps burning forever and ever, never burns a thing up. A worm, like an intestinal worm that keeps eating and never gets filled. Gehenna. Surely that was a symbol when Jesus said, I'm talking about going to Gehenna. To be sent to Gehenna. Surely that wasn't just the, the fire pit outside of Jerusalem. Surely these are symbols. And yes, perhaps there is symbolism in the description of hell in the Bible. But the reason the Bible uses symbolic description is because normal words won't get to the horror of what it's describing. That's why we, say, we say things like, My wife's lips are like roses. We use poetry and symbolism when we can't grasp it in literal terms. What do we say? My wife's lips are like carpuscles. What are they called? You know, blood and and flesh. It it just sounds too anatomical. It doesn't work. No. Just like the descriptions of heaven in Revelation 21 and 22, which probably use symbolism to describe something that is unimaginably greater than we can ever come up with. So the descriptions of hell probably do use symbolism to describe something that is beyond your comprehension. So Romans 8.1 implies that there's such a thing as condemnation, and it is horrific, but it also tells us that there can be no condemnation. Can you just hear that now? Let that just ring in your ears, brothers and sisters. There is no condemnation. You were under condemnation. You deserve condemnation. The condemnation was greater than you thought, than you could have imagined. In God's mercy, he he was patient and he kept you. He kept you from stumbling before the Holy Spirit opened your heart for you to believe. And now the Holy Spirit has opened your heart to believe. And now that you're in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. In Christ Jesus means in his life and in his death for us, where God provided a substitute for us. That's what we mean by the word justification, that we're declared righteous even though we're guilty. Guilt is part of the equation. Or the word propitiation. That now, in Christ, God's wrath has been propitiated. It's been quenched. That's why Christians sing about the blood and his death and and the cross. Because he had to die. He had to suffer so that we 
would be free. He had to die so that we might live. So Romans 5 verse 9 just says, we are saved by him from the wrath of God. It doesn't just say we're saved from the wrath of God. He had to die. We're saved by him. But we're not just saved by him. Like he just, he just grants it. He just says, I forgive you. Like it wouldn't have been that bad if he didn't. But we're saved from his wrath. He loved us even when we were children of wrath. Ephesians 2 tells us. Or 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It's Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is wrath to come. There is deliverance in Christ. And only in him. He saves. That's why we love that word. Save. He saves. And what could that word possibly mean except that we were in serious trouble. But in his life and his death were made righteous and were set free. And this becomes ours through faith. So in Christ Jesus means through his life and his death. And it means received by believing, not by earning it or doing it. John 3, Jesus says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So if you're not a Christian, you don't know that your sins are forgiven, you don't know what will happen when you die, be saved today. Seek Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. Listen to Jonathan Edwards again, who, by the way, was known more for his sermons about God's love than he was about his sermons of wrath, at least in his own day. He says, you have good reason to wonder why you're not in hell already. I'm sure you've seen or known people who deserved hell no more than you and who seemed as likely to remain alive as long as you. But now they're beyond hope. They are crying in extreme misery in complete despair. But here you are in the land of the living, in the house of the God, house of God, and you have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would those poor, damned, hopeless souls not give for the opportunity you have right now? Now you have an extraordinary opportunity. This day, Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open, and he stands calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. And many are flocking to him and pressing into his kingdom. They're coming daily from the east and the west and the north and the south. Many many who until very recently were in the same miserable condition that you're in. They're now happy. Their hearts are filled with love for him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood. They are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Why not you? Or if you're a Christian, what what does this help us to do? How do we apply this? We, We rejoice that we're in Christ Jesus. And we again confess that it's not by our doing that we're in Christ Jesus, but by his doing. It's by his grace that we're saved. So we grow in rejoicing in it. We grow in thanking Him for it and praising Him for it and let it, to, let it be an all-consuming thankfulness. Let this, let this blessed assurance control. It's part of a hymn we sing. Let it control our thoughts. So that tomorrow when trials come, 
We say, there is now no condemnation for me. When people say we're in trouble, the boss, dad, mom, you might be in trouble and might be rightly so to be in trouble, but you can say, there is no condemnation eternally for me because of Christ Jesus. And you can be free. And you can go and you can tell of this with life and death compassion and conviction you can go and tell of this. 